Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Wound Flat Out podcast. I'm Quentin Wilson with my co-host, Jarrett Bean. We are a new podcast bringing you the latest news and sharing our opinions about the MotoGP paddock. Jarrett, how are you doing? What's going on? Hey, what's up, Q? Uh, I'm doing good, man. In, you know, Central Texas, battling the weather. It's up, it's down, it's cold, sunny, it's raining. You never really know what's going to happen with it, but just kind of deal with it. Yeah, same here. It's more just cold and raining, but yesterday it was a nice... I even got into the 50s up here, and I uh, went for a nice drive out in, into the woods just to kind of get out and clear my head a bit. Uh, took my bike with me, but I was alone. So when I got to a staging area, and I had... I had a creepy feeling. You know, sometimes you get a creepy feeling, and when you're alone and your health insurance has lapsed, you decide to not go for the motorcycle ride. <laughs> and, and then I ended up just four-wheeling around in the, in the mountains trying to connect some dots to get a better idea of where I am at any given time when I'm on the bike, which was kind of cool. So, and that's also, it's good to just put the old truck in four-wheel drive, right? It's not something I do every day. I know. All right. Basically, we're going to be covering... Moto 2 and Moto 3. So I'm going to let you roll with it. All right, man. First of all, if you're not watching Moto 3, uh, you need to be. It is without question the, the, the craziest bar-banging, elbows-out, fashion-fairings championship there is. And with coming into this season, there was one standout rider, uh, Dale Conquer Gassini's Jorge Martin, who had shown in previous seasons that, you know, it was – he was aligning himself to put his hand on the trophy before the first race started. He had several pole positions last year, and he finally got that elusive race win at the end of the season last year. So he was in good shape coming into this season. But the big question was, was who was going to challenge him? And there were, you know, there were several, several riders who were kind of throwing their hat into, into being a hopeful title challenger with the likes of Aaron Kinnett, Anea Bastianini, you know, Nicolo Antonelli can be thrown in there as well. But it was, you know, like I said, it was uh, it was going to be Jorge Martin against everyone else uh, starting off that championship. And uh, the opening race of the season at Qatar, a night race, which is always always throws up some some interesting results. He, you know, he was out front. He was out front uh, along with Aaron Kinnett and uh, Anea Bastianini, who was, you know, Kind of the, the story of his career was, you know, fighting up front and then crashing. Yeah. So, you know, it was his season started off on the back foot with, you know, with a DNF. And, and it ended up going on with a bunch of DNFs. He definitely had a few retirements. Yeah, he, uh, over the course of this season, had, had several retirements, you know, but he, he fought up front. He got, you know, a handful of podiums. I'm not sure if he got a race win this season or not. Yeah, he did at, at Catalonia. In Spain, right? Yes. The first the first half of the season, up until the German round at uh, Saxon Ring, uh, Jorge Martin won several races, but he also had Catalonia races. Bring that back up. Uh, he crashed out of the lead. You know, he had he had race pace to win that race by by five ten seconds. You know, he was so much quicker than everyone else. 
but you got to wonder if the the weight of expectations and you know the everything that comes with leading a championship kind of got to him and he threw it away you know he he lost the front and and broke a handlebar and couldn't get back into the race and you know walked away with no points and you know it was like i said it was it was an up and down championship with championship rivals uh one would crash out you know while his rival was on the podium you know you had the the uh the assen race where martin was hands down going to be one of the top guys in that championship and one of the guys that beat for the race and jorge martin won that race and marco bezecchi crashed and you know the following weekend at the saxon ring you know, they Marco Bezecchi and Jorge Martin fought tooth and nail for that champion for the race win again, and Martin took it. He took it by two and a half seconds. You know, kind of again putting his foot down, saying like, "Hey, this is this is going to be my year, and there's nothing anybody can do about it." Well, when when did Bezecchi start showing that he was a contender? Was it, you know, for you? Did did you see a point where it was like, did it take until he got that race win, or was it even before? You know, looking at his results, nothing was like super stand up, but he was on the podium a couple times. Was it that first podium in Argentina that was like, whoa, we got a we got a live one? Not only was it his first podium, it was also his first win. Yeah. yeah. So he uh, yeah. he shot back at Jorge Martin and it was it was a little bit. You have the question of Jorge Martin's decision in that race because they everyone lined up on the grid. It had rained. Probably 20 minutes before the race, it was a quick shower and it stopped. And so the, the track was kind of, it was damp. There's dry lines starting to form. But on the on the warm-up lap, you know, prior to start, Jorge Martin dove into the pits to switch tires. And so that's a, that's a long process for a Moto3 bike when you only have one motorcycle and you have, actually have to change out front wheel front tire yeah they're not made for quick change they're not they're not hard to change but they're not set up to just go could click on the band onto the stands could click to change the tires and 10 seconds later you're gone you know it's not made for that no absolutely not so, so did he, he have to start from the from the pit lane yeah because like i said it was uh it wasn't the siding lap it was the warm-up lap prior to start so they came around everybody formed up on the grid Jorge Martin, Philip Ertel, and I think someone else came in to change tires. And the race started while they were on the stands getting the tires changed. Yeah. So he started that race, you know, way, way, I think, I want to say he was in last place. But, I mean, he charged through the pack, you know, as Jorge Martin does. You know, he finished almost 30 seconds off the, off the race win, but he, you know, he was in 11th place crossing the line. So He got points. He got points. It was a risky move. But it was a risky move as the second race of the season. You know, it was yeah. it was worth the risk, you know, and it was and he was right. He gambled right. He should, but he should have started the race on those tires instead of, you know, doing it after the warm up lap. But Bezeki got it. And now Bezeki. I'm realizing that I think I had gotten earlier when I was talking about him. I got Dijan D Giantonio and Bezeki mixed up as far as their race results because Bezeki had. A horrible first race in 14th, but then it was like podium or crash all the whole rest of the season. Podium, crash, podium, crash, podium, podium. Pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive because he was one of those guys that that no one had their eye on. No one thought Marco Bezecchi was going to be a championship contender. He stepped up. You know, he... he you know, he had that so-so finish in, in Qatar. You know, that's a weird race. It's 
a one-off. It's you know, it's a night race in yeah. the desert. You know where it's an outlier. It's a weird one. And if it's the first race of the season, there's so many weird things that go on with guitar. Right, and you know, it has that weird effect of the track temperature actually goes opposite of what you would think because in a normal race in mid-afternoon, the track temperature goes up, but with that night race, the track temperature drops. So it's a, another weird little dynamic with that race. You know, you get to the the European leg of Perez, Le Mans, Mugello, Catalonia, Assen, and the Saxon ring. And Jorge Martin kind of put his foot down again and said, okay, man, you know, I, I was horrifically taken out by Aaron Kinnett along with three other riders in that crash in the, in the, the, the waning laps at, uh, at Jerez, but he bounced back. Actually, no, he did not bounce back in the mall. He was actually, I think he actually crashed in the last few corners of that race. He did crash. So there was, you know, two races in a row where he lost points in the championship and Marco Bezzecchi kind of put his foot down again and was coming to the front, coming to the foreground. And then we go to Mugello and they finish one, two there. So, you know, it was just a, a tight race of, yeah, you're going to win, but I'm going to get second. You're not going to pull that far away from me in the championship. We kind of touched on the Barcelona race already to where, you know, Jorge Martin was his one lap pace and his race pace was just better than everyone else's. And it was it was his race to lose. And he got out front and he made a mistake and he threw it down, crashed, walked away with no points. Follow that up with the with the Assen race. And again, you know, he he ran in the front group. You know, he led when he wanted to lead. He tried to get away at the front initially in that race, and it didn't work. And, he, you know, the, the following pack kind of chased him down. And I think his experience in the class, he figured out that, you know, I don't I don't have to lead every lap. I can just no. I can just sit in this pack. These guys are fighting tooth and nail. They're pushing over the limit in some corners. And at the end, he worked him. He, he saved a bit of tire. He worked himself back to the front, and he won that race. Championship rival Marco Bezzecchi ended up in the gravel trap. Now, at at some point, we should talk about the Honda KTM differences because I mean that's it. There's the two make series essentially uh, in Moto Three, and the Hondas had I don't know they they they're not a complete. They're not extremely different because we're talking about it's it's like scalpels. They're all scalpels. Right, they're all very sharp, very finely tuned things. But the power production can be changed drastically with very small structural changes in the bike. And KTM, halfway through the season, got some was able to change airbox and exhaust. I I, I don't exactly know the rule structure. You, you're going to have to inform us. But it, they they're you're allowed a certain amount of changes. Is that correct? Yeah, the Moto Three class, they're. Uh... I won't say it's a new rule, but it's relatively new as far as the class goes. But you're only allowed one upgrade per season. Now, you can make that change preseason, or you can make that change midseason. But if it's Honda or it's KTM, everyone that's on that bike gets the upgrade. There's no preferential treatment to who's paying the most for the best parts in that class. And it happened over the summer break after, uh, after the Saxon Ring and before the Czech Grand Prix in Brno, that KTM got the new airbox, and it gave them a little bit more punch on acceleration exiting the corner. And it didn't really have a huge effect. Uh, I'm, you know, looking at results, it's not like the onslaught of Hondas was. I mean, it, it, in the in the championship, in the end, 
it was Honda, Honda, KTM, Honda, Honda, Honda. And then KTM's for a really long way, just because the grid is filled with them. But the fact is that in the first top six, five of them are Hondas. Obviously, the preferred, or do you think, at this stage, is Honda putting more money into it? Or is KTM, what do you, what do you think's going on as far as a, from a structural standpoint of these teams running Hondas or KTMs? Does it matter? Or are we, am, I, am I trying to make something out of nothing relative to the machines? Uh, what, from what I've gathered, the differences between the Honda and the KTM, uh, the Honda is pretty good in all aspects of, of, uh, of the track as far as corner entry, braking stability, acceleration, corner speed. It's, it works pretty well in all those aspects. But the KTM is very specific in how you ride it. And a lot of a lot of the riders who have switched between Honda and KTM say they've never used a rear brake on the Honda, but to get the lap time out of the KTM, you have to use it. Yeah, interesting. And the KTM is 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 much more a brake really really late and get on the throttle early kind of a bike. Like it's, you got to ride it a little bit more aggressively. Yes, you have to. You have to kind of you know really shove it in on the corner on corner entry and brake late using the rear brake and then get on throttle exiting the corner early you know and that that new airbox helped that tremendously but you know knowing how to ride the thing and being able to do that are you know two different kettles of fish and i think the honda overall was just a bit better of a bike as far as all around goes you know and in the hands of jorge martin you know that you know he was i think he had 11 pole positions last year it was ridiculous how good that guy was on one lap pace yeah and you know staying on the same bike in the same team with the same people around him you know that uh, consistency within that that organization is what helps you know no one's ever there's rarely ever a champion that switched teams switched crew chiefs and made a whole bunch of changes over the offseason and just showed up and was <laughs> the following season it's, it's very rare yeah but that was, you know, that's what I think was the was the difference. The, I think the Honda is is overall a little bit easier of a bike to ride and to get the lap time out of. But the KTM is a little more a little more specific in how it needs to be ridden. And sometimes this the the track benefits one bike over another. You know, you know, you see that sure. through all classes of racing. That, yeah, no doubt. It's interesting though to think about it relative to Honda, who's been creating Grand Prix bikes for many many decades, right? I, I personally, am, I'm looking at one of them right now in my living room, uh, on the RS125. So they've got that down. They've figured out the chassis. They iterate and iterate and iterate. They go to four strokes whenever that was for the, for the 125 to, to 250 four-stroke. What, 10 years now, probably? Not that far. I think it was because no. 2010, Mark Marquez won the 125 championship. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so... Within the past the eight years, probably something like that, they got it down. You almost have this, you got the Honda with the Grand Prix fast-flowing momentum, and then you got the KTM, of course, being a, a dirt bike company, with their, the way they make chassis, the way they, you know, their, let's call it their engineering culture. It's interesting that their Moto3 bike has ended up kind of having a, a point-and-shoot not a dirt bike. I mean, I, I know and you know they're not making a dirt bike, and they didn't really affect it to be like a dirt bike. But it's interesting that it bends more towards that relative to the style of riding that you would have to 
really get on the brakes and then get that thing plucked over on the on the side and get the power on as soon as you can whereas the honda fast flow keep the momentum etc and a lot, everybody probably is like well how the heck can you even have that on a bike that you know has between 40 and 60 horsepower i don't even know where they're at now i know the 125s they were into the 50s on horsepower i would imagine that's about where these things are yeah you gotta you, there's no way it has more than 65 horsepower like there's no way oh no 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 dad but you know i don't know i don't know enough about this at the at the sharp end how many engines do they use per year because you could make one probably but that means it would probably be spinning to like seventeen thousand rpm and you'd have to change it after every practice session you see what i'm saying so it'd be interesting to find out i'll do some digging to 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 figure out like what where are we at with a horsepower war in uh in the 250s you know it's an interesting one because uh like i'll give you an example when i worked for graves yamaha the 450 supermoto bikes which were really taxed and very high level they were making like 65 horsepower which is gnarly at the time this was a 15 years ago 10 to 15 years ago and i know that's like the normal now for a 450 motocross bike uh that's been built to make about that so i can imagine the 250s it's they're probably knocking on 50 horsepower either way that they take momentum to get around the track they take a different riding style than a bigger more powerful bike but you still have to have all of the recipe to make it work right and then you have to have riders that are that are good at making that making being able to take the power that they've got whatever way it is whether it's top endy or mid-range or whatever and make the best of it and it seems like this year, Bezeki was able to take that KTM and get it up there immediately, and and was really good. Yeah, he was he was a stud, man. He 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 showed up, and he was kind of the unsung hero, you know. Like he w- wasn't supposed to be there. It was it was almost like he's gambling with house money the whole time because whether he won the championship or not, I think he won because he out he, he kind of outperformed everyone that was was in the in the championship hunt preseason that everybody had rated higher than him. What team was he with? Uh the Red Ox Prustal GP team. Had uh, did they rate in any way? Had they had or had any success before this that you know of? Not that I'm aware of. Huh. Awesome. Well, that's even better, right? Absolutely. So, you know, it was it was Martin's season. You know, he had a couple of a couple of mistakes and you know there was a couple of races where he was taken out but the one thing that never happened was he never got hurt which was kind of of note you know he got up and he walked away from all of his crashes you know upset you know whatever whatever you know you what have you but as we come back from the summer break coming off of uh, of two race wins in a row after the summer break we you know we show up at the check gp and free practice gets kicked off and Martin's kind of pushing for a lap time to kind of, you know, really to let everyone know, like, hey, man, I'm the guy still. And he loses the front and he has a, you know, relatively small crash when you start, when you think about motorcycle crash, a relatively small crash. But as soon as he got to his feet, you knew something was wrong because he was awkwardly and very gingerly holding his wrist and and walking to the side of the track. And he was actually taken from there in the ambulance. And it was it was at that point, it's like, okay. Something is there's gonna, there's about to be a big change in the tide of momentum of this championship because Jorge Martin looks like he's really just hurt his wrist, and it turns out that he did. It turns out that he he'd actually broken his wrist 
and uh, was was headed out and was going to get uh, treatment. And Marco Bezzecchi didn't really capitalize on that. You know, he was in the fight. He was he fought up front for most of the race, uh, but he ended up off the podium in sixth place, which is you know it's still good good point scoring position, but in a championship where four or five points matter, you got to make your you got to make your rival pay. When yeah. When he's not on the grid. And, you know, that's – it is what it is, and everybody wants to be a champion, but you got to have that grit and determination to really punish somebody when they're not around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jorge Martin misses the, the Czech Grand Prix in Brunel. A week later, we show up in, in Austria for the Red Bull ring in the foothills of the mountains and that beautiful scenery. And who's in his garage with his leathers on? But Jorge Martin, you know, six days after having surgery and on his on his wrist, and he's he's, you know, he's gearing up. He's ready to go out on track. And it was he, he's not the only Jorge that has pulled a similar stunt. Didn't uh, what I don't remember what year it was that Jorge Lorenzo did a very similar thing where he broke his something and then was back like a week later, and it was gnarly. I mean, it's a different level when you're doing it at MotoGP, but still an interesting analog to this. Yeah, uh, Lorenzo actually crashed at Assen. I want to say that was 2010. But he crashed in practice and broke his collarbone and had it plated and then came back and raced. Oh, that's what made it more profound. Holy shit. He came back and raced and got fifth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, a good example for all of these guys, this is the level we're dealing with, that in order for them to do the thing, you better be ready to break yourself and then suffer. To keep your points, right? Absolutely. And and Jorge Martin suffered probably more than most because he said that uh, taking medication for the pain actually upset his stomach and it would make him sick, like nauseous sick. So he, he didn't even take pain pills. And, wow. you know, they, they limited the damage. You know, I think in, in FP1, I think he only did seven or eight laps. And FP2, I think he did three or four, and then half the session it, it rained, so he didn't even go out on track. So he was saving his strength, saving his energy, and just kind of mitigating what he wanted to do on track. But come uh, qualifying, he goes out and he, uh, <laughs> you know, he's seven hundredths of a second off pole position behind Marco Bezzecchi. Yeah, I think you and I talked about it before. Like that's that's a, a psychological blow when it. In and of itself, you know. I'm like, broken and I'm up in your shit. Yeah, like, hey, man, I, I broke my wrist. I had surgery. There's a plate and screws in my wrist, but you are still less than a tenth of a second faster than I am on one lap pace. Yeah. And, you know, race gets off to a, to a banging start. You know, the, if you're not aware of the, of the Red Bull ring in Austria, it is a series of very long straightaways, some uphill, some downhill, some off camber. But they're all very long straights with very, very sharp, almost 90-degree corners at the end. So that brake pressure from those speeds on that freshly repaired wrist had oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I still don't understand how he did it. But he ends up that race, he ends up that race on the podium. You know, he was half a second behind Bezecchi who won the race. And even Marco Bezzecchi was like, he's the raging bull. You know, he, he, there's nothing you can do to keep him down. And, you know, he, he immediately tipped his hat to Jorge Martin's ability to just fight through that pain and get the result that he needed. Yeah, I think everybody saw that very clearly at that time. It's like, whoa, this was 
pretty much what you would consider the key race of the season, in part because of that. Yeah, it was because he not only did he miss out on points at the um, at the Brno round, but then he shows up a week later willing to risk it all. He 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 proved that it was it was worth the risk. You know, like he almost got second. He was a tenth off of second place. But he he showed up, he fought through that pain, and he got the result that he needed. He finished, you know, he, he lost another, I guess that's 10 points to his rival, maybe eight points to his rival. I think what really helped him more so than that was the following weekend. Uh, I guess that was two weeks later, the the, uh, the Silverstone race that was rained out. Yeah, so got- which is, there's not too many precedents for a rain out. I don't know where... How long it had been since a MotoGP had just gotten straight up rained out, but of course it would happen in England. Uh, it's almost like it'd be, it'd be like if they were trying to hold a, a race up here in Portland. Of course it's going to get rained out, but that's I think that was a big deal that kind of pointed out some ugly ugly planning and or ugly facts about how Silverstone should. Well, it's like how how is it possible that you have a, a racetrack in England where you know it kind of rains a lot that could even possibly get to the point where it would be flooded, right? Yeah, and and part of that was the the track surface had recently been resurfaced, and the water just wasn't going anywhere. Like there was there, the drainage was just bad. Sure, but you know, again, how often does it rain in England? You know, you guys should have been on top of that. Yeah, right. Sure. Well, either way, bottom line that for Martin, big break, longer break than what he would have had otherwise. Plenty of time to recover. Awesome. Absolutely. And so we head forward in the championship to to Italy to the uh, to the Misano round and the Riviera dei Rimini and uh, Marco Bezzecchi's home race, the Sky VR forty six, the the Riders Academy, their home race. So Marco Bezzecchi felt like he had to show up, and he all all props to him. You know, he he, he kind of did. He qualified second row. He ran the race up front. He was in the front group, and uh, I think with three laps to go, he was leading the race, but he tucked the front, and he threw it away. He destroyed the bike, couldn't get back in the race, and at that point, the race was so tight up front, I don't think it would have mattered as far as you know getting back on the bike and trying to score points, but he threw it away, and uh, Jorge Martin was on the podium. Dallaporta won it. I don't know. Was that Dallaporta's first win or just his first win for the season? I think that was Delaporta's first win, and he was on a Honda, and he had he had had a podium at the first round, but other than that, had not really factored in. So that was kind of cool to see that happen. Yeah, and he almost, came on strong from that point on with a with a few podiums. Yeah, and it's always good to see a rider get his first win. That's always a, sure. a kind of a joy to see that you know a guy finally get that breakthrough win and and get himself up there. And, you know, the, the season kind of went on. You know, it was Jorge Martin just always had a bit of a leg up on Marco Buzecki. He, he beat him at uh, the following race in in, uh, in Aragon with that ridiculously long back straight. He beat him there. And uh, we go to the inaugural race at the Chang International Circuit in Thailand. And it was a race where Marco, where Jorge Martin actually didn't end up on the podium. He actually finished that race fourth. But Anea Bastianini dove up the inside of, of Marco Bezzecchi and lost the front and took both of them out. So there's another race, probably his, his third race of the season, where Marco Bezzecchi finished a race and did or did not finish a race and lost points to, to Jorge Martin. Do you think Bezzecchi was like, 
Anaya bastard Nini after that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was it was a it was an audacious move. I won't fault Bastion mm-hmm. Nini for trying because there was a gap yeah. there. You know, there yeah. was a window there, but it was just it was just it was one of those things where you knew it was gonna fail as soon as you saw him kind of get out of the slipstream and try to dive up the inside. You're like, this it's too late, it's not gonna work. That's his class though, man. Right? It is. It's part and parcel of it. There's a lot of it, retirements in this class. It is, and you know, part of it is trying to make that trying to make your name known as a commodity. You know, you're trying to build up your brand as a as a writer. But part of it too comes into play with the level of maturity, you know, because a lot of these guys are really young, you know, like they're 16, 17, 18 years old. So, you know, they're, they're, they're hot headed. They want to prove a point. They want to be the best, but sometimes you gotta, you gotta understand the package that you have and the setting that you have for that particular race. And those particular conditions might only be good for fifth place. And that's, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's hard to tell that to a 17 year old that wants to win. That's probably, accustomed to winning yeah for sure uh I was, so this is the this is part of the the deal where i think a lot of people aren't into moto 2 and moto 3 like oh well i don't want to watch the the lesser machines and that's a fallacy right yeah these kids they're kids and the racecraft isn't quite as good but it's still pretty damn good by the time any of these racers are on these machines at this day and age they've been racing for almost a decade Right. These are kids that have gotten like uh, as four year olds, they're getting on little bikes. They're Absolutely. they're well seasoned by this time and they have racecraft and it's impressive. So watching these classes, you get a better idea of who these people are once they get to MotoGP. And then it makes you a better MotoGP fan because you understand where they've come from. So I can't stress enough for people to watch these races as much as they can. And you'll find that it's very entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, so after the after the the Thailand round, we move on to the Twin Ring Motegi in Japan, and again we had another another pendulum swing in the championship, and we also had a track that was very stop start, which kind of lends itself to the characteristics of the KTM, and in that race there was, I think in the top ten of that race there was like six of the top ten. Riders in that race were all on KTM. Which is a tough thing because Honda is not a big fan of losing at their home, uh, whether it's literally their home track like Motegi or even in Japan in general. Any of the uh, Japanese manufacturers, it's very bad. <laughs> so to see this happen there, I was like, whoa, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, so that race, Jorge Martin ends up making a mistake. You know, it was a downhill right-hand corner that's off camber. So, you know, for those that don't know, the inside of the corner is, you know, as far as elevation goes, is higher than the outside of the corner. And he got outside the racing line, and he he tucked the front. And he knew how big of a mistake that was because as he's sliding on his butt, you know, into the gravel trap, you know, he puts both his hands up on his head like, oh, my God, how did I just make that mistake? And he finishes the race with no points, and Marco Bezzecchi wins the race. And we walk away from the uh, Japanese Grand Prix with three races to go in the championship with a one-point difference in the championship, which, you know, it gave Marco Bezzecchi hope, you know. And, sure. and, he, and he fought for that win because 
He exited the final corner in, in second place and got past, oh, gosh, I can't remember who was in front of him. Probably Delaporta? Uh, no, Delaporta was there, but it was Darren Bender. Darren Bender was actually leading the race coming out of the final corner, but he ah. missed he missed a gear exiting the corner, and so Marco Bezzecchi and Delaporta had to had to drive to get by him. But you know the and that the top three in that race were split by forty two thousandths of a second, which is mind boggling. <laughs> well, and this is the this is a, a a flip from earlier when we were talking about where Bezzecchi wasn't able to capitalize on the failure of Martin. He absolutely capitalized in this scenario. Absolutely, he did. And like I said, he, he brought the championship back down to one point between himself and, uh, and Jorge Martin, who still had the, the narrow one-point lead. And then, you know, the, the following weekend, we move on to everybody's favorite track, Phillip Island. Yeah. Which, you know, that place throws up more, more obstacles than any other racetrack there is, you know, with uh, the cooler temperatures in the morning, the, the potential for rain, the potential for wind. Bird strikes, yeah, yeah, and seagulls on the track, and you know, hitting <laughs> hitting birds, but just the fast flowing nature of that race was was impressive. And Marco Bezzecchi uh, was taken out. He was, I want to say it was Albert Arenas, or maybe it was uh, Gabby Rodrigo. He was. It was one of those situations where someone dives up the inside or between two riders, and they kind of. Elbows kind of touch, and you kind of lose a little bit. And uh, Rodrigo and Bezeki went down in a in a crash, and he, he couldn't rejoin the race. So again, you know, he's losing valuable points. Jorge Martin wasn't on the podium, but he did get a top five, so that stretches the championship out again. It was just, you know, like I said, it was just that back and forth. And Jorge Martin left the left Phillip Island with a twelve point championship lead with two rounds to go, and. You know, it was a, it was going to be an uphill slog from the, from that point on, and 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 Bezeki really had to show up in the following rounds. But you know, un- unfortunately, he he wasn't able to do that. And Jorge Martin took the uh, the championship at the following round at Malaysia. He took yeah. it from in the best place possible. You know, he got he got the race win, and he walked home with the spoils. And in 2018 with the world championship in Moto Three. And a, a fresh ride in Moto2. Yeah, KTM Isle Squad. Which we'll get to in a, in a little bit. From a, from a standpoint of going into the 2019 season, what are you thinking? I mean, we've got a bunch of these guys are leaving. But Zeki, Martin, I don't remember how many of the other top contenders are, are going into Moto2. Can we comment on that? Uh, did Gian Antonio move yep. up? Who was second in the championship. Yes, Anea Bastianini moved up. Uh, yeah. Philip Ertel moved up. A lot of the a lot of the stalwarts of, of the class have 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 moved up. I think it's a combination of being in the class three four years and just the opportunity finally presented itself to move up. But with with the Gen Antonio, it was I think it was his size. I think he's just getting a little too big. And the same with Nicolo Bulaga. I think those yeah. those two riders in particular. Their their height got in the way to the point of, you know, for them to lose enough weight to be competitive on the bike, they just wouldn't have the energy to ride those bikes, and it just it made sense for them to to move on and and I you know hope the best for them in, the, in this in this coming twenty nineteen season. Yeah, I I can't speak enough to the you know it matters more on the smaller bikes, of course. Anything we anytime we have a, a, a less horsepower 
lighter weight is going to make a huge difference, especially when you think of the rider's weight as the largest single movable weight on the machine. I mean, you've got um, unsprung weight, you've got spinning weight, look wheels and brakes and whatnot. That's different things have different factors as far as how much effect it has on the machine. This gigantic mass that you're that you're moving on top of the motorcycle matters a huge amount. And it's not just for acceleration and deceleration. It is also for cornering. So in some ways it's good to have extra weight to be able to handle the bike. And then in the larger bike classes, I think it matters more where in moto three, it just, it's nice to be small. I ended up on my, when I raced 125s, I was five eleven and weighed, I was lucky that I only weighed like 140 pounds when I was racing those things 20 years ago. Uh, that was the only way I was able to be competitive is that I was just a string bean. But I ended up having to have what we called the big boy tail section where it raised me up uh, uh, quite a bit and it tapered off. It had a bubble in the, in the butt, so it had a little arrow for me. I had to have 30 millimeter longer rear sets than most people. Um, <laughs> Which, which were specially made by this guy in the U.S. because there were so many of us that raced 125s in the U.S. that, that were big. And it made a huge difference. You're like, well, you want to have weight over the front end. It's like, well, it allowed me to put weight over the front end because then I could actually finally kind of stretch my legs out. So seeing all these guys getting bigger, it's just part of the parcel of the deal is that they're going to have to get through it. So good old Booliga. I love it when the, the Euro announcer says, Booliga. Um, he's... <laughs> Yeah, it'll be good to see him him getting up and out of there. And the same with, what did you say, Giantonio is the same way, he's a bit bigger? Yeah, the Giantonio yeah. is a bit bigger. I think the year prior, the Dutch rider, Bo Benschneider, was the same way. But him riding a Moto3 bike was going to be a failure from the start because he was almost <laughs> six foot tall when he started, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to cut your teeth somehow, I guess, right? It's like, it's the way it goes. So speaking <laughs> of cutting teeth and speaking of 2019 – we got to talk about the race winner from Valencia, Chan on Chu. Chan on Chu showed up in a big way. You know, he was he's the reigning Red Bull Rookies champion. And because he was the, the champion of that series and because he's only 15, uh, the rules were amended uh, so that it was initially amended to say that you could enter the championship if you had won the CEV Red Bull or uh, the Repsol CEV championship. If you'd won that championship and you're 15, you could enter the world, world stage. But they amended it also with Red Bull rookies and being 15. So after winning that championship, he got his, he got his chance with the Red Bull KTM Isle squad, Moto3, to enter the last race of the season in Valencia. And what a horrible debut with that colder temperatures and rain the whole damn weekend. But, uh, but he showed up, you know, he, he put the bike on the second row and he made his presence felt as soon as the lights went out. You know, he fought up front the entire race. And as the race progressed, the field started getting a bit strung out as, as it kind of does in the rain so that, you know, you still have a bit of visibility, but you're still within touching distance of the guy in front of you. And he was running third place and the, uh, the two riders in front of him just pushed over the limit. And, you know, tucked the front on corner entry and ended up sliding through the gravel trap, trying to collect it and, and get back into the race, whereas he didn't. You know, well, and, and he did have moments, but and they were pretty impressive moments. I mean, a seat out of the saddle near high sides, but he managed to keep it up, which is impressive. Super mature. 
Right, and it was it was also funny to see all of his his team hanging over the pit wall, telling him to calm down as he slow down the the hands the hand motion down like yeah, yeah. slow mm-hmm. the f down, man. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the leaning over the pit wall and pointing to your head like, hey man, think this through. Be <laughs> <laughs> it was great theater with his little brother Dennis was there doing the same thing like come on man you don't even know please because he was going well he was still going well which was like a recipe for disaster but he managed to pull it through and became the first person to win on a Grand Prix debut since Nabi Ueda back in 1991 which I think is a remarkable stretch of time think about that 1991 since somebody has come out blazing and won the first race of a championship for themselves. What an, what an impressive thing. Yeah, and in the process, he took the record for the youngest ever Grand Prix winner from uh, Scott Redding. Which you're pretty happy about because you want to not have to talk about Scott Redding any longer. Oh, man, look, I'm not that salty about Scott Redding. I just, you know, the guy was just perpetually in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, yeah, it's not his fault. No, it sucks. It's an unfortunate scenario. But maybe he's in the right place now because he – He's making a transfer at, I think, British Superbike on the new Panigale V4. So he should be in a pretty good spot. Yeah, and there's there's less pressure. And I think I think he'll be at home there. I think I think Scott Redding is one of those guys that I think he likes having the fans close. I think he likes the interaction with fans. I think he really enjoys being around people and being just a goofy guy that he is. So I think that's yeah. going to fit him a little bit better. You know, I wish nothing but the best for the guy. But like I said, he was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time all the time. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's not the same for good old Chan, which spelled C-A-N, but he's Turkish, so that's with a cha. So if you see his name, it's it's Chan Anchu. And the other standout for me was the replacement for Nikola Bulaga out of the uh, the VR46 Academy. Bulaga. You got to say Bulaga. <laughs> Celestino Viete. Ah, yeah, sure. Which has a great name. What a wonderful name, Celestino. And again, another one's with a it look it's just a C, but you gotta go with the cha, right? So yeah. Celestino. And he did not embarrass himself, you know. For for a guy who raced the last I believe it was the last five rounds of the season, and he had never raced on any of those tracks. And you know, he scored points in his first race. I think he crashed in one of his races, but then he followed that up with the the freaking podium. And at Phillip Island, and, and then he crashed out of the the next one, um, Malaysia. Was it Malaysia or was it Motegi that he crashed? Uh, Motegi got fourteenth, which I think is in the points, right? Like you were saying. <laughs> yeah, they scored down the fifteenth. Yeah, so he got the points. Then got third in his second race, which is like barn burner, and then retirement, which is like, yeah, I can see that if you're if you're that fast right off the bat, you're gonna be you're gonna be, and and you're only you're coming in late. You're like, yeah, I might as well send it, right? And, you know, it, it ended up getting, uh, I believe he got a top 10 in the last race in, at Valencia in the rain. So the guy didn't embarrass himself at all. He's he's with a great outfit, and, you know, he's going to be in the championship next year, and I, I think he's going to be somebody to watch. He may not be a championship contender in his first full season in the championship. I'll tell you what, man, those that VR46 Academy is going to be is going to be chucking out a lot of champions, I That's, think. They're cranking them out already and it's impressive. So, but they've got a good formula and it's working. Absolutely. As you would expect from Valentino Rossi, right? It's going to be a, a legacy that I think will resonate for decades. And I think that's good. I think a lot of people are worried that Valentino once his career as a rider ended that he might step away from it, but it's apparent that he's going to be in it. I hope, you know, fingers crossed he continues with this 
for you know decades, and it would be great for the sport. I don't see why he wouldn't. The one thing that everybody needs to know about Valentino Rossi is the dude just likes racing bikes. You yeah. know, like, that goes a long way, and I don't think he's ever going to give that up, even if he's not doing it professionally anymore. Like, I think he gets more of a charge from the work he's putting in at that at his ranch when he's out dirt tracking with all those guys. I think he yeah. enjoys that more than anything in the world, and that that says a lot about him. You know, like I think he's going to be one of those guys that's sixty years old still showing these kids on his dirt track like how it's done. Yeah, I agree. He's it, it's good to see a true enthusiast. But also, let's face it, that dude loves to fuck with people, and he loves to win. So to, to see him getting in there and fucking with people, you know he wants to continue to fuck with people, including good old Mad Max Biaggi, who's coming in to the Moto3 realm as a team, either a team motor or a manager, right? His new team is, is coming in next year. I'm not sure if they're going to be on Hondas or KTMs, but he's signed uh, Aaron Kinnett to his team. It's a single rider team. Which might be a little difficult, you know. It's always a little, little harder when you only got one run rider's data to look at, and it's your own. So if you get well, lost, what do you think as far as with with Aaron Kinnett? He he started the season off hard with a bunch of podiums, but then really had a bad end of the season. The last half, a lot of retirements. Do you feel that he is going to be able to get mentally get back into the game? I I think so. You know, a, a fresh start always does riders good. You know, he came up through that Australia-Galicia team through Spain, and there's not many of those riders that came up through that organization that have really done much in the championship. Mm. You know, if you look at the last ones to really shine coming out of that outfit to move up were Alex Marquez and Alex Renz, and that was in 2012, six years ago. Yeah, interesting. Everybody that's come up through there since, Aaron Kinnett, Alonzo Lopez, as of recently, Anea Bastianini was in that outfit for a while. You know, none of them have really done much. You know, they they were championship contenders to start to start the season, but part of that has to do with the history of that team and the organization of that team. But you know, everybody wants to be the champion, so they go to that team, and it's like, yeah, it's it's going to be easy with these guys, and it's like, mm, not really. So they've they've had their struggles, and you know, they've been kind of punched in the mouth by some of the other teams, and I don't think they're as quite as prestigious as they once were. They're notorious for bringing over 15-year-old Spaniards to into the championship, you know, these young, young kids yeah. who are going off that lineage of this is the best team, so we should be the best, but it's not always about that. Well, what, are, what other riders then are we looking at for the 2019? Who are the hot ones who are obvious and hot? Jama Masia, Dennis Foggia, there's a lot of guys that are coming back that are going to be in in a good position. You know, Tony Arbolino, Andrea Mino, McPhee, Rodrigo. There's a lot of guys that stayed in that class that are have never really set the world alight, but on their day, they were good. And with the with the exodus of some of the current top riders, both from a just a pure number standpoint, but also psychologically, it's like, okay, those guys have moved on. I'm now racing against the rest of them and i you know from a mental standpoint i might be able to like i can beat these guys and that what is what is the term the the most crucial part of the track is the six inches between the well who is that that says that steve english steve english is which i you got to give credit to him because that's great that's where a lot of this happens and it's happening right now is the mental games that all of these guys are having to play with themselves 
get prepared for the 2019 season. Yeah, and if you look at the 2019 grid for Moto3, there's only three or four riders that have ever won a race. You got McPhee, Dallaporta's still there. Antonelli? And Has he ever won? Antonelli's won races, yes. Yeah. And Chan on Chu, who won the last race of the season, he's going to be there. Then you have the wild card. Yeah. You have the wild card of Romano Fanati. Oh, yeah, I forgot about. Oh, uh, yeah. That's going to be gnarly. You got a, a hardcore veteran that's not only a hardcore veteran, but it is a very controversial, bar banging, hot headed, problematic person, but might have some amount of calm now that he's been forced to get back down into Moto 3 from Moto 2. Which doesn't happen that often, right? No, it's 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 happened a handful of times. I think Danny Kent was in Moto Three, yeah. moved up to Moto Two, and then came back down, yeah, uh, and won a championship. Might add, yeah. But Mono Fanati, out of all the guys that are in the championship now, he's the he's the only guy that's got multiple race wins, and he's the only guy that's ever fought for a championship. You know, he's the only guy that has that experience. So, I mean, he is he's the ultimate wild card because you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know how he's going to behave on track. I mean, the guy lost his job last year for a bonehead move, um, you know, out on track. Don't want to, you know, dabble too much into that. But, yeah, you know, the guy was borderline exiled from the paddock. <laughs> you know, he really was. Yeah, he was. He had a he had the MV Augusta Moto2 ride until that as well. And then it was like, nope, done. You're out. Yep, Cancel the contract. And even uh, the Italian Federation uh, revoked his license. So at that point, even if he wanted to get back on the grid, he couldn't get a license. Yeah. But he's going to be back. He's going to be back for the Moto3 Championship next year. I mean, we'll see what happens. Romano Fanati's always been fast on a Moto3 bike. He didn't ever set the world alight in Moto2, but he's quick on a Moto3 bike. I know that. All right. Well, hopefully he adds to the mix and makes for entertaining racing without being a complete jackass. I hold out hope on that. He's going to do something dumb over the course of the season, but that, <laughs> that's what makes it fun. It gives you something to talk about, you know? Yep, no doubt. Well, hopefully we'll be talking about it. Okay, so not necessarily dark horses, but people that are going to be factors for 2019. Foggia, is he going to be a Moto2 or is he, is he Moto3? Moto3. And he he's, again, inconsistent, but per perhaps with this kind of shakeup of people and teams, he might be in a good spot because he did get a podium towards the end of the year. Uh, same with Darren Bender. Like, his potential, he has the people around him, obviously with his brother, he should be able to get up there, but I'm not really quite sure. What do you think? Uh, I mean, he's going to be there thereabouts. The same with Jalma Masia and Tony yeah. Arfino, in my opinion. I think those guys are going to be real quick next year. Darren Bender, like I said, he's going to be up there. So is Marcos Ramirez. And, you know, there's a handful of other guys that are going to, you know, show up on their day. But I think it's going to be a – I think we're going to be in for some surprises as far as who's going to be on podiums, who's going to get race wins, and who's going to emerge as the uh, the championship favorite. We'll see. You know, it's 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 kind of up in the air right now as as far as who that's going to be. But I'm going to pin my, my colors to, to Tony Abellino. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Not having paid a lot of attention to him and looking at his results, I, I'm surprised, but it's interesting that you're, you're going with that. I would probably say Arenas. I think that showing that he can win is a big deal. 
that he has that capability, he knows what it takes, and that maybe he's just going to need to calm down a little bit and be better at his racecraft. But I think, I mean, you could say that about 90% of the grid, you know. Sure. But he's he's one he's one out of that ninety percent that has wins to his credit multiples, which is of note. Right. Yeah, and it's just it's that that mindset of it's so cutthroat in that class that if you get past, you got to get right back by the guy. And it's like, eh, that's not necessarily the case. The guy's not pulling away from you. Just have him tow you along for a while, and save your tire, and you know. And you saw that from Martin this past. Yeah. Of like, you know, there were several times he was fourth, fifth, sixth place, but there was never more than six seven tenths of a second between you know the lead and him so he was always within striking distance and he just never had to over push and when he could win he won when he finished on the podium he finished on the podium you know he had those two mistakes in catalonia and uh, japan but his other dnfs he was taken out by other people yep it's what a championship makes right that's that's him dude i can't wait to be doing this from austin in a few months like i'm super getting super excited for being able to talk about all of these classes while we're there. This is going to be Oh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, do we, uh, do we need to spend any more time on Moto3, or is it time to, to chat Moto2? No, I think we're good, man. I think we, we, we covered all the bases. Riders moving up, riders to look forward to. I think we're good, bud. Okay, right on. Moto2. Moto2. Starting this season off, several riders threw their hats in the, in the I'm going to be a championship contender bowl, I suppose. Uh, Alex Marquez, Miguel Oliveira, Lorenzo Baldessari, Keiko Banyaya, and, you know, I guess some people uh, even threw uh, Sam Lowe's in there, which I don't, I'm never agreed with, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't see it, you know, like, no, no rider has ever gone from MotoGP back to Moto2 and set the world alight the first year. It's just never happened. Yeah. I don't know why anybody expected anything different. But, you know, my suspicions were correct at the end of the season. Yeah. Anyways, uh, starting the first race off the season, floodlights, guitar, and it was two Italians out front with Lorenzo Baldessari and Pecco Bagnaia. And the one thing that I that can be highlighted over the first half of the season is that Pecco Bagnaia was – he was going to be the standout. He was, he was a bit more consistent than everyone else. When he could win, he won. But when he had to settle for the points, he did. And like he, there was no that pride issue of I gotta beat this guy, I gotta beat this guy. It just wasn't there with him. And he's always shown just a little bit more composure, a little bit more maturity than most people. And he, you feel he, that a lot of that was what for this year though was the fact that he had the relaxed knowledge that he was going to be part of the MotoGP paddock. He was already there, so he could just kind of just put his head down and do the thing, but he didn't have that pressure. Absolutely. I think that was a big factor in it too, was the security of knowing what you're going to be doing next year and not having to rely on, I got to get good results in order to put myself in the shop window to get a good ride next year. Like he started the season off with a great ride, you know? Yeah. And what did it say on the back of his leathers? Go free. I think that's what it said. And he did, man. Like he Go free. <laughs> <laughs> Hippies. We're talking about a hippie? Is Banyaya a hippie? I did not know that. Thank you for that insight. Go free, huh? That's good. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think on his GP leathers, it still says go free across his butt, I think. But in the, in the first three races of the season, especially the first, the first race and the third race, you know, he, he battled Lorenzo Baldessari for that race win, and he got it. 
And then we come to Circuit of the Americas in Austin. Alex Marquez was on pole, had the race pace to win the race, but Benyai beat him by almost two and a half seconds, you know, at the end of the day. And it was, I don't care, I don't care what your race pace says, I'm better than you are, kind of. <laughs> you know, and he, he yeah, really sure. down like, yeah, I, don't, I don't care what you guys think, I'm, I'm better than all of you, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to prove it. And he rattled off, he won, uh, he won three of the first five races and really set himself up for the rest of the season with that lead and just managing the, the lead. He finished off the podium a couple of times, Mugello, you know, I, I know he wanted to be on the podium there, but he finished fourth. Barcelona, a similar thing, you know, decent result. You know, the bike wasn't there. He couldn't really ride the way he wanted to. And he, you know, he finished the race with uh, an eighth place finish. You know, his, his his rivals, you know, did rail, you know, finished second that race and was, you know, presenting himself as the guy that was going to, you know, provide the most problems for, for Pecco. But no one could consistently beat him week in and weekend out you know he just it was just too many race wins too many podiums and his ability to manage the the tire wear is what what really gave it to him because he didn't make a lot of mistakes on track he didn't throw it down i think he finished the season off with 28 point scoring positions going back to last season you know you just it's hard to beat that yeah, he never had a full retirement. I think he got crashed out, but he got back up. And was it Valencia? The one I'm thinking about where that happened was Saxon Ring, and that was uh, Mattia Pacini crashed in front of him, and he went off track to avoid yeah hitting his bike. But, but he still finished 12th. I mean, he still finished up there. And the, I think that's the same thing that happened in the reign of Valencia. If, uh, if I'm remembering correctly... It was our good buddy Luca Marini that crashed That's him out. His teammate, yeah, his teammate crashed behind him. Weird crash too, breaking in a straight line, and the front end washed out. Boosh, his, right into him. Yeah, and his bike hit Pecco's rear tire. That's what kind of scuppered his race a little bit, but. But bottom line is, throughout the whole season, not one retirement. I mean, that's how championships get won. Same with Miguel Oliveira, though. You got to give credit to Miguel. He was in it and he was really good very impressive from all standpoints i feel well yes and no because miguel like i said miguel Oliveira emerged as the the challenger to you know peco put one of his hands on the trophy and miguel said well hang on a second i'm gonna fight you for it yeah but after the saxon ring in germany the second half of the season miguel Oliveira was outscored by his teammate brad bender and as far as points and wins goes. Yeah. So, you know, there was a little give and take. There's a, you know, here and there. But like I said, I mean, after after that summer break, when we came to the Austria round, Miguel Oliveira was leading the championship, going into his home race for, for his team as far as the KTM goes in Austria. And the race being called the Red Bull Ring. Mm-hmm. You know, he was on pole position. Pecco was second, and that race got started. And I think it was four or five laps into the race, it was it was just apparent that it was going to be a, a, a duel between the two championship contenders. And it went down to the last lap, last corner, and Benyai got in front, and I, you know just out drug into the line and took the lead of the championship. And in my opinion, put one nail in the coffin of hey, I'm going to be the champion this year, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Yeah, it was a key moment, and it's well worth watching that race to understand because it was a pretty impressive duel between the two of them. For me, it was just watching Banyaya's 
maturity, just kind of sticking behind him. But like shit to a shag carpet, man. He was right there on him. He could have passed him so many times, but he just stayed there pressuring and pressuring and, and rossifying him. And Miguel <laughs> didn't crack. Miguel, to his credit, didn't crack. He stayed fast. He let him pass and go, but he would, he would get back in front. He just didn't know what he was going to get on that final lap when Benyaya, last corner, just said, nope, got it, sorry. Yeah, and it was it was one of the best races of the season. For me, it was, anyway. Like, it was just... That two-rider duel is always exciting to see because you never know, like, is he sitting behind him because he knows he can't pass him? Or yeah. is he sitting behind him and he's studying to figure out where he can get past and, and stay in front? Yeah. Because, I mean, we can all get past. You can always break late and just dive up the inside and get past but you know you're gonna run wide you're gonna you know compromise your corner exit speed and he's just gonna drag past you on the on the next straightaway but that was you know that was a key moment in the season where Benyaya was he took the championship lead back you know and doing it in your rival's home round you know that that psychological advantage means something you know like that those things mean something and then obviously you know next weekend rained out and then you know we go to Mizano which is Benyaya's home race and his team's home race, and he comes out, comes away with a commanding win over Miguel Oliveira again. You know, Miguel just couldn't he couldn't run that pace late, which is what Benyaya does. You know, he's they they commonly they all I say commonly often said that he just he strangles you with his consistency. You know, like no one else was that consistent in in the races as far as lap times and. He wasn't going to be forced into a mistake, and he just—he never did. And he walked away with another race win and extended the championship lead. Now, I, fought, I started following Benyaya on social media, and it's interesting. The posts that I'm seeing are of, of like all these late season either galas or to dos that they're him and his partner are going to, and him, his dress, and the and the way he presents himself, and then his, the frankly the beauty of his partner. It's like he, he looks like he's 30 something. It's bizarre. Like there's a <laughs> there's a the way he's carrying himself is that it's like a, it's apparent in the way he he approaches the racing is that he's he's got some maturity. So fingers crossed he can take that maturity into MotoGP and not do anything uh, crazy. That's that's going to be your 2019 rookie of the year in GP in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I'll I'll go with you on that. We'll put that stamp down and say for sure. Uh, unless he gets hurt, that would be about it. You know, other than that, I think he's he's going to be hot. And let's face it, a lot of it is that he has positioned himself to be on the right bike. Yeah, and it's well, I don't want to get into that. Let's just keep on with it with the Moto yeah. Two so far. Uh, he wins in Mazzano, extends his championship lead, and then we go to uh, Spain again for another race. Which <laughs> don't even get me started on why there's so many Spanish races. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we go to we go to Aragon and. You know, it's another similar thing. Like, he doesn't have the pace to win, but he finishes second. And he finishes ahead of his closest championship rival, Miguel Oliveira, who finished down in seven. Yeah. And again, it's just, what do you do? You know, what can you possibly do other than hope that your your teammate and several other riders can get in front of him? But he's, he was just Peko and that Sky VR46 team and his teammate. Uh, Luca Marini, the unsung hero of this championship, they were just a they were just a step ahead. 
you know, they were just a little bit better with, with one lap pace. And I, I think that was kind of Miguel's downfall in the second half of the season. He just didn't qualify worth the crap. Like, there was a couple of times he was down in eighth. There was a, I think there was a 13th qualifying position. It's like, you can't qualify that far down that late in the season and, and expect to really be a challenger because you just, you have to deal with too much adversity mid-pack in Moto2 and burn up too much tire front and rear to try to get yourself in a position to where at the end of the race you can then fight because you, you've already used up all your tire to put yourself in a position where you're, yeah. it's like, all right, I'm in fourth, fifth, there's eight laps. So, all right, in three laps, I'm going to push and really go for the win. But at that time, uh, Miguel Oliveira had used up so much tire that it was just, it was just over. You're, just, you're, you're fighting to hold position at that point where Keko's got that extra little bit to where he can, you know, he can he can stretch out two tenths, you know, a lap on you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't fight back. Agreed. Absolutely. It's similar to Maverick Vinales, but again, that's a whole other that's a whole other <laughs> podcast, right? Peko Benyaya, kind of like the Moto Three Championship, ends up wrapping it up in Malaysia. He didn't do it with a win, but he did do it with a podium. And he gets a lot of credit for that sweet little tent that they put up with those black and gold leathers and the black and gold yeah. on the bike. But they lose a lot of points because he then tried to bump start the bike in sixth gear and it just wouldn't start. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to ride back on the scooter with his world championship flag and his sweet black and gold leathers and helmet on a scooter. back. To the yeah. Pretty bike. depressing. It, it, it's a tough one with the bikes with, when they're so hot post-race. You got a hot bike with not very much fuel in the tank. The fuel will actually have a tendency to either boil or just – it's just gas. It's uh, like like not not liquid. Um, so that's probably what happened in that scenario, and they didn't factor that in. Probably should have had a little bit of fuel with them when they, when they did that. But, oh, well, that well, is what he, it is, he, right? He said that – when he pulled over, he just shut the bike off, and he never put it back into first gear, and that's why it wouldn't start. He tried to bump start in sixth gear. Oh, okay, got it. Well, yeah, was, oftentimes it's easier to bump start something in a higher gear, but not sixth. Yeah, okay, not got sixth. it. Poor Pecco. Yeah, poor Pecco, but... And then the next race, when he had that bitchin' gold livery, right, he got taken out, like, in the first corner. So it was like, ah, you don't get to see him race with that, which was beautiful, I have to say. Black and gold. Yeah, the black and gold was good. It was, it was, the gold wasn't overdone, so it didn't no. look gaunt and, and silly. It no. looked good. It was a beautiful motorcycle, beautiful leathers. But I think the the high point, I say high point, the, the, the talking point of the season is the fact that no Spanish rider won a race in Moto2. Oh, yeah. I love it. I, I mean, I don't want to hate. I'm not hating on Spain or Spaniards or... It's just the, the fact that MotoGP is so indentured to Spain, whether it be the Honda connection with Repsol, the Dorna, you're right, Esposito. Is that? No. What's his name? Esposito. Espo, sorry, Esposito. Where am I? What am I talking about? An actor. So that <laughs> there's constant. And then, like you said earlier, four rounds in Spain. It's like, God, it's, it's almost overdone to the point where you feel like there's almost too much curried favor for Spain on many levels. And then also with, a, uh, with Marquez doing as well as he's done over the past five years, it's kind of like, oh, man. But seeing this... And, 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 the, seeing bias, this. and the bias to Spain showed 
so much in that GP race in Valencia where was it six riders crashed in the rain when it was just pouring at the beginning of that race. But as soon as Mark Marquez went down, this we got a red flag this race. <laughs> yeah. Ah, come on, man. So in this case, it's not only good for everybody, but it's good for Italy, I think. And it's good for the Rossi Academy to show, all right, we are now in it. We have shut you out. This is awesome. Now <laughs> come, come on back with it, right? I think it's good. But mainly, it's, that means that Alex Marquez didn't get on the get in, didn't get first, which I, I think both of us are kind of like, yeah, that's kind of proving what Alex Marquez is at this stage. Absolutely, this is just further confirmation that Rossi's battling everyone else back because the previous year Franco Morbidelli won the championship, who's a VR46 rider. Yeah. So two years in a row, the same academy has won the championship with two different two different teams, and. Uh, I think it's going to be really hard for Alex Marquez next year. I think at this point, the sponsorship money has got to be starting to dry up. You know, it's like, dude, you're, you were supposed to be a champion three years ago. Yeah. You got you to gotta wonder how much of that team organization is starting to say, eh. Yeah, his name is only going to get him so far. We know he's a good racer. He's obviously decent. The question is, is he a champion? And it's apparent that not right now. Does he have potential for it? Maybe. I know you don't necessarily think so. I still hold out to say, you know what? It's a very strange mental scenario to have a brother that's like a however many times, five-time world champion at this stage. It's got to be tough for him to, to manage that. Yeah, and it's – look, Alex Marquez has won races. He's put the bike on pole position. He's looked dominant in his day. But I just don't know that he has the, the mental fortitude to do it week in and week out. You know, and that's that's the difference. It's not that look, Alex Marquez is quick. You know, I mean, like he's a he's a Moto Three World Champion, but I just don't know if he has it in him to be consistent enough to win a World Championship in Moto Two. And this 2019 it will be his fifth season in Moto Two, and I'm starting to wonder like how much longer is he going to be in that top level squad? Like when it, when is it going to like how long is enough? You know, this will be your fifth year and your best finish in the championship. I think it's third. And it wasn't like you were still more than a race win worth of points off of the championship, if it was even that close. Yeah. He's only 22. So, again, too fast, too much, too soon. Obviously, uh, Mark Marquez is fine with too fast, too much, too soon. Alex might be one one of the ones that might have to come on later on or get out of that team. Different pasture. All right, different green, and he might need that, and that is not what's happening. So who knows? Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that a different team is going to help him much because it's not, gonna, it's not going to be like wherever he goes is is going to be somehow better funded and better equipped to help him win a championship. I just don't see that happening. Ah, uh, it's not necessarily better funded or better equipped, but as long as it's something similar, just a new face, a new, a new crew chief, a new set of people around you. Can you know a change is as good as a rest? Sometimes that's the I mean, that's an old adage. Change is as good as a rest, and he might need that, especially like you're saying, five years in hasn't been the champion. He was world champion in 2014. Holy crap, that's a long, it's a long time in this realm. So to see him kind of suffering uh, has been a painful thing to watch, and hopefully he'll either get better or get out. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's another it's another element to the psychological damage of being in that team 
to know that the three teammates that he's had at that Mark VDS squad, two of them were world champions, and all three of them are in MotoGP. Yeah. And his ride, the ultimate ride that I'm, th- I'm sure is all of Spain's wet dream would be him with his brother at Honda. But that's yeah. not going to happen. It's not going to happen because it's not going to happen at the end of 2019 because Lorenzo's on a two-year deal. Yeah, for sure. So he's going to have to spend – he's going to be in, in Moto2 for six years at that point. It's just going to be hard for me to, to envision a – a top flight team that wants to take him after all that. But yep. I mean, it happened, it happened with Johan Zarco. Zarco was in Moto three or Moto two for, for I think five years, but he was also a two time champion. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that carries weight, but Marquez has, has proven that all he, all he's done in Moto two is, you know, the odd pole position, win a race, you know, aside from this season, but he's kind of like Sam Lowe's. You know, he's, he's up front. He races in, in top positions, but he makes mistakes and he crashes. He pushes over the limit. But, you, you know, like I said, you can't win every race. It's, no one's ever going to win every race in Moto2. You're going to have to have those days where, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth is, is all you can do. And sometimes all you can do is all you can do. Yeah. Well, from another standpoint of Spain, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, Miguel Oliveira, no, he's Portuguese. Marquez. Juan Mir, he's out. He's gone to MotoGP. Xavi Vierge, he's not only is the Spanish that could come up and, and start winning, but he's he's favored in my view because I maybe it's just that video of him sliding around that is so supreme. But something gives me the idea that he's going to be there. Uh, uh, that and he had a couple podiums this year. I think he's ready to go. Yeah, he's another one of those guys that's you know that you, you hear that a lot of behind closed doors. He's like, that guy's got it. You know, like he just, he needs his break to show it. You know what I mean? He's people talk about him in that light, but you know, you, you still have the returning riders of Lorenzo Balasari. Yeah. Luca Marini's is still there, but I mean, there's, there's not a lot of guys in that championship that have, have, have raced up front. Brad Bender's coming back. And in my opinion, Brad Bender's the championship favorite. Is he to to your mind? Yeah, it makes sense. In my, he's been in my, there long enough. He's got the experience. He can do the wins. Well, and that's the thing. I think this will be his uh, this will be his third year in Moto Two, and you know his second year. You know he got pole positions. He won, I think, three races. Yeah, outscored his senior teammate the second half of the season. Him, I think it's going to be early on. It's going to be Luca Marini, Lorenzo Baldassare, Brad Bender. But I think as the season goes on, it's just going to be Luca and uh, and Bender fighting for the championship. And I think Bender's going to take it. Interesting. Any dark horse in this realm, like the Navarro, La- Lacuona? What do you think? I think Jorge Martin is a dark horse. Oh yeah, sure, of course, yeah, right. Yeah, he's he's moved up to 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 take uh, Miguel Oliveira's spot in the KTM IO squad alongside Brad Bender. He impressed, but. Problem with the KTM this year, I think you and I have talked about this already, was that they were, all four of their riders were complaining about front end chatter on corner entry. Like, you know, there's just something wrong with the chassis and the stiffness with that new Triumph engine in it that's just not clicking right now. And they're all kind of suffered from it. And there's reports of of Bender really, really lacing into the team about 
about the bike and where it's at and where it needs to be and kind of really putting his foot down as far as being the team leader and, and making demands, you know, like it's kind of unheard of from that guy, but you know, you get it. He, he understands the opportunity that's yeah. interesting. This is his time. He needs and this I, now. I, and I like that. You know, I like, I like a guy that's, that's willing to put it on the line and say, Hey, you know what? I'm running this show. You guys give me what I want and let's make it happen. You know, like I like that. You, you, I like that aggressive, you know, basically gambling on yourself and backing your own skills. Like, Hey man, you give me what I want and I'll put this bike on, on the top step of the podium. And I like that. And they will. I, I have faith that, you know, that the, I'm, I'm a little bit bummed that their development, this didn't come out during their development of that chassis, right? You'd think with KTM being them, they would have had this set for a while already. There'd have been a lot of testing or whatever uh, for them to be this far back with all the other teams doing so well in the testing already is a bit of a bummer. And the same goes for their MotoGP bike. It's like, woof, you guys, um, again, surprised that it's taken this long for them, but it is what it is. They're just going to have to, they're going to have to go back to the, a little bit of a drawing board, maybe not drawing board. They're going to have to iterate on the bike as they've got it. Chatter happens. It is a, it is a normal thing for a, a race team to have to manage. It's tough. And sometimes you have to manage it at a higher level or a lower level. I'll give you an example. One team I worked for had a really bad case of chatter. This is in the mid-2000s. They ended up making a solid stainless steel front axle to change the complete behavior of the harmonics of the bike. So that wasn't they didn't go to the chassis because they couldn't. There was no modifications that could be made because it was in a super sport class scenario. So they ended up changing the one thing that they could. And it helped. I'm not saying it got rid of it. You're basically band-aiding the chatter, but they changed the harmonic frequency at which it, it's, it started. And that, I mean, it was, uh, from a legal standpoint, could they have been busted for that because they changed the front axle? Possibly, but they had to do something. It gives you an idea of what they might be able to do. From KTM standpoint, they just need to change some aspect of the ch chassis stiffness near the front end somewhere in the triple clamp area to down to the engine mounts, et cetera, et cetera. They'll get it figured out. But the fact that they got to this point and that it was as bad as it is, it's a little scary for sure. But I think they'll it's, be okay. It is a little alarming, but, you know, KTM is, has said that, you know, like they're, this is a five-year deal for them. You know, like they, they, they're willing to put in the work. They're willing to, they understand the fact that it's not going to be overnight and they're willing to do all the steps necessary to do that and it's the the chassis is going to change it's going to get modified and tweaked here and there and it's 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 going to solve the issues there's there's no way that ktm would in a, in a squad as as well funded and, and well rehearsed as they are to to flop i just don't think they're going to do that i think they know that they're in a good position to fight and potentially win the championship next year because i mean they were they were close this year, both, and both of their riders had race wins. Both of their riders had podiums, had full positions, and that goes a long way. There's not a lot of teams on the grid that, in 2018, had both their riders win races and both their riders get pole positions. Nope, and there's a lot of data there. And they've got a little less than two months before the Malaysian test to get it sorted, so hopefully they will. From the end of the last test, they had well over two months to do it, because it's not until early February that the uh, yeah. test happened. So they have plenty of time. They're probably going to come with a couple of different chassis specs as 
as they should. Yep. They get that big wide open track that's probably going to be wet some of the time, so you get a bit of wet weather riding in there as well. So I think they're in a good place. I think they've got good riders again, but Jorge Martin had a, a testing crash and he broke his wrist and I think he broke his ankle. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, he, and it's not the same wrist that he broke in, in the Moto3 season. He broke his other wrist and Damn. his ankle. So he's, he's you know, he's, he's a wounded man, but... Plenty of time to recover. Yeah, plenty of time to recover. And their, and their team leader is Brad Bender. So, I mean, it's, it's not the end of the world for them. But uh, I, think, uh, I think Bender's... I think the pressure of knowing what's on the table for next year and knowing his responsibilities within that team, I think that kind of led to his little bit of a meltdown with, you know, really giving the team a, a dressing down as far as the state of the bike. But again, this isn't, this isn't going to be permanent for them, I don't think. All right. So that's generally Moto2. Anything else you want to speak on relative to where we're going to be at with Moto2 as far as next year, the team's, Anything like that? Everything seems to be... It's Kalex against KTM again. I doubt that it, the speed-up chassis is going to be there, and there's a couple other also-ran chassis, but... There's that weird NTS team that's always been a bit suspect, but, you know, there's a lot of fresh faces coming into the class. There's, you know, the, the new engines going from Honda to the Triumph engine, so riding style of the bike changes. Yeah, the point-and-shoot squirting out of a corner torque I think there's an adaptation process to that for some of these people, but it's apparent that in the testing that they're they're fine with it. It'll be good. Yeah, and I think it's going to favor, you're going to see it favor a bit more of the, uh, I think your bigger riders are going to start to show up a little bit more and bigger by, I mean, like height and weight. I think it's going to favor Lorenzo Baldessari because he's a bit of a bigger rider. I think Luca is going to benefit from it because before it was it was all about, you know, just kind of squaring off the corner and trying to get out of it and carry speed. But the Triumph engine, from what I've heard, has more torque, uh, low end, to get you up out of the corner. But as far as, like, fourth, fifth, sixth gear, the Honda was a bit better. But I don't think it's going to matter as much because the Honda had nothing coming out of the corner, you know. Yeah. So I think – well, and, and Lorenzo Baldessari on the Pond scheme, like, he, he kind of was the – stand out from the testing like he, he he showed the adaptability to change up quicker than everyone else so he was a bit out front as far as the times go yeah but luca marini was the one that that took it like he was fast yeah luca's fast as well both coming out of the same camp the vr46 academy on different teams my dad but i think those uh i think like i said it's gonna i'm not, I don't, I'm not sure if balasari has the has the maturity yet he seemed to to just end up in the on the ground, you know. But you know, Luca Marini has proved that he's got the, you know, he's got the he's got the chops to to put together a championship run. And like I said, I think if if the KTM gets their bikes sorted out, I think it's going to be the two Italians and Brad Bender early on. But I think the, what about our buddy Sam Lowe's? He's fast and testing. <sighs> <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. I yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily have much faith that he's going to be good, but you never know. This he might benefit from this motor swap scenario, whether it be his riding style or the team, because the Grassini team has their shit together. It is a Kalex, so hopefully he'll do okay. I like again one of the things that I, I talked about earlier in this in this show was the the consistency. You know, he went from 
the Suter, the Moto 2 to the Kalex, and then he went up to GP on the Aprilia, then he came back to Moto 2 on a KTM, and now he's switching back to a Kalex. It's like, ah, man, it's, it is, it's not a recipe for success, in my opinion. And, you know, Sam Lowe's is, is a, you know, he's a pole position guy. He's gotten, he's gotten race wins in Moto 2, but he's also crashed out of podium contention. And Yeah, he's inconsistent. Yeah, sure. he's very inconsistent. But, you know, who knows? You know, a little bit of maturity, you know, a little bit of knowing what GP is like and what that world is like and how stressful it can be. And, you know, it, it can, you know, it can either make you or it can break you. Well, the, the people I think are going to make it, this is my personal, just because this is from a fan standpoint, is Xavi Vierge, for sure. I like him. And then, of course, my good buddy, Nicolo Bulaga. I love Bulaga. And I just want to say Bulaga as much as I can, so hopefully he does. Yeah, right on. No doubt. And because I like the idea that him and Marini, as Team VR46, will kind of help each other and make it bitching. And it's, it's, it's almost the same scenario as this past season to where – you know, there's a clear number one, and the number two guy has an opportunity to shine, but it's it's a great learning opportunity. You know, I, yeah, yeah. There's Luca Marini probably learned a heck of a lot from Pecco this past season. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that transfers down to Bulaga, and that'll be good. One one team that I'd love to see do good, just because I like a little bit of differentiation and and what bikes are up in the front, would be uh, Stefano Manzi on the MB Agusta. I don't have a whole lot of faith that the forward racing team will be able to make that happen, but hopefully it's up there a little bit. Maybe some top 10 finishes, maybe a top five here and there would be cool. Yeah. Uh, the MV Agusta coming back is always one of those things where, you know, you it's just a nostalgia thing to, to, to yeah. use past. And it's, you know, long since years past. Stefano Manzi has shown nothing as far as being a consistent rider. I think, through practice, qualifying, and races, he had 30 crashes this past season. <laughs> okay. I think well, I want to say there was at least three or four that were first lap in the race crashes. Yeah. So, eh, I don't want to ever throw anybody's career out the window, but I just, it's 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 hard to think that he's going to turn that around and, and somehow be a championship contender. Same with Sam Lowe's. His last year in Moto Two, he crashed twenty eight times or whatever throughout the season. So, yeah, hey, come on, man. Sure. Well, what about Tetsuka, Tetsuta Nagashima? My apologies for butchering that one. Eh, man, the the Japanese riders are always. It's it's hard not to want the best for him because of you know the history with you know Honda and Yamaha throughout the championships, but they're doing what they can as far as developing riders at a young age because they have the Honda Team Asia squad in Moto3 and they race in the, in the Spanish championship in the CEP. They have a spot for them in in uh, in Moto2. And also, that's kind of how uh, Nakagami got into the LCR team was through the Honda Team Asia and Itamitsu, like their sponsorship in Honda. Yeah, But... Uh, I mean, he's kind of the unsung hero of Honda this year, you know? Like, yeah. He up the testing role with Cal's injury and uh, Marquez's surgery and the departure of Danny Pedroza. Like, he was kind of the guy, you know? There's a, there's a cool path being formed with teams 
legitimately putting money and funding and and help into developing young talent and keeping that young talent under their own umbrella. Sure. Well, hopefully Nagashima, because uh, he was a top 10 in test. Uh, hopefully he is able to springboard that into the Malaysia test and continue to do well. And hopefully that team, the SAG team, does well for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Any dark horses? Dark horse Moto2? Uh, let's, uh, I'll say my rookie of the year. Man, it's going to be a toss-up between Jorge Martin and, and Fabio Di Antonio for me. I don't know that, that Nicolo Bulaga is going to pull it off. I know you love him so much. Oh, man. But, uh, <laughs> what about Luthi? Even though we know Tom Luthi has been in a tumultuous time ever since taking his, his uh, 125 championship. It's been a long time. He's been in for a long time. What do you think? I think Tom Luthi is coming back for a little glory and will soon disappear. Fair enough. I don't, like I said, I mean, it's, it's never happened that a rider went – from Moto2 to MotoGP, and then back to Moto2 and set the world alight. It just hasn't happened. I'm with you on that. I'm just bringing his name up because it's there. Then I would say my dark horse, even though it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's a dark horse, Mar- Marcel Schroeder. I like him. I like the way he rides. He seems like he's potential. Yeah, he's been around for a while. He's always been, you know, kind of one of those guys that either he couldn't figure out how to manage the tire or he couldn't qualify. Yeah, you know, there's always the, there's always like one little piece of the puzzle that's missing from a lot of these guys that kind of keeps them out of it. Like Jorge Navarro. Jorge Navarro is real quick, but he just throws it down too many times. Yeah. What about Augusto Fernandez? Would he? Augusto Fernandez is the same way. Simone Corsi is the same way. You know, Augusto Fernandez, Stefano Manzi. Like a lot of these guys are, you know, Dominic Agatha, they're they're there or thereabouts, but none of them have ever really strung together enough good finishes to be in it at the end. But all the guys that have have kind of moved on. So it's a it's kind of open season to put your foot down and say, hey man, this is gonna be my year with a lot of fresh faces in the paddock. And like I said, you know, you can't understate the importance of the engine change and how much different that's gonna make the championship next year. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait for the next test. So much is going to start shaking out from this. So I'm very excited by this happening, uh, even though it's a couple months away. It's like, oh, there's been this most ex- I've, I've been excited for a new season a long time. So I'm getting all jazzed. Yeah, absolutely. As you should oh. be. I'm, I stay jazzed about racing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's apparent. That's why we're having these conversations. Okay, so I think we're uh, we've pretty much covered it. Uh, do you, is there anything else you want to go over? No, I think I think we nailed down all of it. I think we kind of touched on just about everything. So yeah, I'm I'm good, man. We can wrap nope. this up if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. No parting words from you. You're set. No, man. Just looking forward to 2019. It's about it, man. Looking forward to 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 doing a show from uh, the cheap seats in Coda, probably up in Turn One or something, or maybe the hill outside of uh, uh, the penultimate corner, right there on the grass. Maybe I don't know. Hell yeah, I'd be stoked. Whichever way we're going to do it, we got to get it, got to get it going. Okay, all right. Thank you guys for listening. We very much appreciate your uh, support. Until next time, unless you got to put the brakes on, keep it WFO. Let's go wide open. Cheers.
you puny protozoa. You're so minute, you didn't know the gang has been watching you, but instead of just squashing you, I'm stupid. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over.